Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the latest on the ongoing protests and blockades and how the federal government is responding to the situation. Also, Alberta's education minister outlining a new funding model for K-12 education in Alberta. Plus, a look at the future of autonomous vehicle technology and whether self-driving cars will be able to navigate Canadian winters. So finding a solution will not be simple. It will take determination, hard work, and cooperation. Well, there's the Prime Minister in the House of Commons uh, today suggesting that well, we need to be patient. We're going to try to figure something out to deal with this whole situation. I think Canadians are looking for a lot more than that uh, leadership to begin with. That there's been a real lack of leadership from the Prime Minister on this whole situation. I mean, a big part of that is the fact that he was out of the country and didn't seem to demonstrate any sort of urgency about getting back here to deal with it. Uh, so now that he's finally back, speaking of the House of Commons today, I don't think he was filling anybody with confidence about any kind of resolution to any of this anytime soon. So what do we make of all of this? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, John Iveson, uh, post-media political columnist, much more at nationalpost.com. Also his book, Trudeau, The Education of a Prime Minister. John, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hello. Well, the Prime Minister talking about a, a need to find a solution, but not really offering uh, one today. What, what did you make of his comments in the House this morning, first of all? Yeah, there didn't seem to be much of a plan, which I think is slightly worrying. Not that he has that many options. I mean, I think there are limited options here, but um, but it was slightly concerning that he didn't even go as far as to condemn the protests. I mean, I think a lot of Canadians would be are looking for him to say, look, it's okay, peaceful protests are okay, but when it turns into civil disobedience that hurts other people, then that's not okay. And he hasn't even gone that far, and I think that that is a little bit worrying because it suggests we're going to drift for a lot longer than many people have got patience for. You know, at the same time, nobody wants to see another OCA. They don't want, uh, I think, sending in the police or the army at this stage would be premature. But I think they do want to think that their prime minister uh, is showing some leadership and has some idea of what direction we're heading. Yeah, you know, I mean, it would have been one thing if if he'd said all of these things, you know, a week ago or 10 days ago. But, you know, it feels like this has been dragging on forever. Uh, and we're really now just just hearing from the prime minister. So how much is it fair, do you think, to to fault him for what is perceived to be a, a lack of leadership on this? Well, you know, he was abroad chasing this U.N. Security Council seat, which may or may not be a good idea. But, you know, I think he could have come back earlier. It, it, it is a national crisis. And... You know, the new era that we entered after the last election was meant to be that it wasn't all about Trudeau, that he would be giving other players and other ministers some space, some face time on, uh, in the media. 
and that we would have a deputy prime minister who would be there when he wasn't to step up and speak on his behalf. Well, none of that has happened. And it's only really uh, since he's come back, and, and even then it's taken a few days before he's come out and said anything at all, never mind anything definitive. So I don't think it's been a great couple of weeks for this government and, you know, nor for the country as a result. As you say, I mean, there, there are no easy answers here. And, you know, there, there, are, there are different protests. And I, I think some of these uh, protests involving uh, Aboriginal protesters, maybe there's a different conversation than some of these eco-activists. Uh, at, at essence, in all of this, at the heart of it, is this coastal gasoline pipeline, which has overwhelming First Nations support. So how do, how do we go about, and why do you think the government isn't going about disentangling all of this? Well, you're right. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it's, a, it's a, an Aboriginal uh, justice, Indigenous law issue that happens to feature a pipeline. You know, the elected, the elected chiefs in that band, in that First Nation, and in all the neighbouring First Nations, are in favour of it. It's the hereditary chiefs in that uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nation who are not in favour. Not even all of them, incidentally. It's only five of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it, and it's more to do with with First Nations governance and recognition of Indigenous law than it is particularly I think about this this pipeline. I think that the, the government had promised to revamp Indigenous rights and Indigenous recognition. Um, Trudeau stood up in the House of Commons almost exactly two years ago and said that. Uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould wrote most of that speech. She was his Justice Minister. She was going to be heavily involved in rolling out this new framework, which was meant to to kind of head off some of these issues. And yet, and then SNC happened and she was gone and it, recently, it really got parked. So this is the government that said it was going to get involved in reconciliation with First Nations. And it really hasn't moved that agenda at all. I think it's a, one of the major areas where it over-promised and it has under-delivered. And I think it's part and parcel of a solution to this. You know, clearly it doesn't, a commitment to to move ahead with this stuff. It's fairly obscure, it's fairly slow-moving, and it's not going to be a panacea for, for what's ailing the country right now. But I think, you know, it's going to be a combination of carrots and sticks. You know, the government is basically going to have to say, you can't park yourself on this railway track indefinitely, so we've got to come up with some kind of solution. How about we make moves in areas that you want us to make moves and that we intended to make moves in anyway? Well, yeah, I mean, I can't see how they could back down on this this pipeline right now, this LNG Canada project. I mean, it's a $40 billion project. The NDP government in B.C. wants this. The Alberta government's supportive of this. As we mentioned, uh, these First Nations along the pipeline route are all supportive of this. If, if the demands are that that pipeline project has to be stopped, when that's clearly not an option, how, how do we get past that? Or how does the prime minister try to square that circle? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think... You know, the pipeline has got a legal uh, right ed right now um, as a result of a British Columbia Supreme Court decision. That will probably be challenged and it will probably go all the way to the Supreme Court. So I, I think that that is a separate process. The government is not going to wade in and say that you can't build this pipeline. It's not really a, a, in their jurisdiction to do so. So I think that uh, that will play out uh, from a legal point of view. But... You know, it's a complicated issue about whether the Wet'suwet'en have title to their land. Well, at the moment, they don't have title to it, so they can't say no. Now, it may be at some point that they they are granted title by a court, 
or by the government, at which point there's a different conversation with the proponent. And, you know, I mean, it's conceivable that that happens and that the proponent then has to dismantle the pipeline. And that's not where we are right now. This, this is what I'm saying about it being a long stand, a long um, timeline as far as granting indigenous rights. I think the first government's first move is to say we want to get all of these bans out from under the Indian Act. Uh, we would allow them some form of self-government. And now, it may also involve some kind of financial settlement. Mm-hmm. But then the ball's in the court of the, of the First Nation. They've then got to resolve internally how they're governed and who speaks for them. Because at the moment, it's not even clear who's speaking for them. It's very hard for, the, for any government to deal with this kind of amorphous, you know, it's like nailing blancmange to the wall when, you're, when you, you don't know whether you're talking to the, the, the hereditary chiefs or the elected chiefs. And I think by taking some of these moves, uh, you would start to see um, some clarity on those issues, and then you can start to move on to, to other more complicated issues. None of this, obviously, is going to clear the, uh, the tracks in the Tyndinaga First Nation that's currently the, the root of the problem, or not the root of the problem, that, that's the immediate symptom of the problem, but the root of the problem is this area of indigenous rights and indigenous law. Well, it's the thing, and I think, you know, Canadians are probably broadly supportive uh, supportive of the idea of, of reconciliation, a better arrangement uh, between the federal government and, and First Nations, and some of these, these broad objectives, but I think Canadians are growing increasingly impatient when it comes to, you know, protests that are trying to put a stranglehold on the economy and shutting down rail traffic. But, and but here's the thing, though, Rob. We, we, this country is so vulnerable to this stuff yeah. that come Trans Mountain, if this were to, uh, you know, become a much wider issue, there are so many vulnerable choke points uh, that, this kind of, that, you know, a, a small band of dedicated uh, opponents of resource development could close this country down. I mean, we haven't even got to Manitoba, but Manitoba, if you put a a burning car on the track in Winnipeg, then all cross-country traffic stops. And we're not there at the moment, but that's that's where we could be going. I mean, there have been studies on this, uh, and it's it's almost a, a conflict studies into the feasibility of civil unrest. And in Canada, they found that we are, the feasibility is very, very high because we are so vulnerable. It's a sparsely populated uh, land that relies on, on road and rail infrastructure that can be easily closed down. So I think we've got to start talking about real reconciliation. And, you know, in crude terms, it comes to be a, an exchange of money, a combination of money, land, and power mm-hmm. in exchange for an intercourt court battles and blockades. Well, look, I mean, yeah, in case anybody didn't already understand those vulnerabilities, I mean, we were basically loudly broadcasting to everybody that, yes, we are vulnerable here. I mean, you know, the the inaction, uh, the hand-wringing, the conversations, I mean, it it sends a very concerning but but very loud message, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is not um, this is not new. I mean, people have been writing about this for 20, 20 years or more. I mean, I'm just reading a paper from 2013 that's uh, talking about uh, the, the potential for this stuff to happen. And, and you know, there are there are um, grievances from real grievances from the indigenous yeah. community of homicide rates, uh, incarceration rates, high school graduation rates that are extremely low, youth unemployment, and on and on and on. But the 
but the real uh, worry is the feasibility of, of, of an uprising, um, which you would not need a, a large warrior cohort to do. And, you know, it's very quickly the bill mounts. I mean, I'm looking back in this article, the 2012 CP rail strike cost an estimated $540 million a week. Uh, Mark Garneau said last night that the, the line that is closed down currently, $120 million of goods cross it a week. You know, this we've already been closed for uh, for 12, 13 days now mm-hmm. on that line. This is really going to hit the economy. It's going to start hurting people as far as uh, moving propane heating fuel. Uh, there are warnings that uh, chlorine needed for water treatment plants uh, is going to be in short supply, so you're gonna, everybody's going to have to boil their water. De-icing fluid for aircraft is not moving, which means at some point flights will be grounded. You know, this country relies on its railways, and they're very easily to, easy to close down. Indeed. Well, full coverage uh, on all of this, nationalpost.com. John Ibison, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Bye. All right, that is uh, John Iveson, post-media political columnist, much more nationalpost.com. Also, his book, Trudeau, The Education uh, of a Prime Minister. And this, I, I think, is really the first crisis of uh, Trudeau's tenure as prime minister. And I think so far he's, he's done a terrible job in, in handling all of this. Again, look, it's easy enough to say that if Trudeau believes that we need to meet with the uh, hereditary chiefs, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who have some concerns about all of this, uh, if there are other issues... That, that need to be discussed with them, or that he's prepared to do so. And, and no one's saying he can't do that, or no one's saying don't do that. But I think what needs to be said unequivocally is that these ongoing rail blockades are unacceptable and need to come to an end. I mean, you even had uh, a prominent Mohawk chief earlier today, which we told you about, uh, who said, look, enough is enough. You guys have made your point here, that we need to at the same time have some compassion that this is going to negatively impact Canadians. And indigenous and non-indigenous Canadians. Uh, now there's protests trying to get this chief to resign. So, and, But I mean, the prime minister needs to say that. He needs to say enough is enough. These blockades need to end. That this isn't the way to resolve any issue that we are facing as a country. That's where he has failed the task. Well, the Alberta government has announced today that uh, changes are coming in the way that education, K-12 education, is funded. And that is going to start this fall. Uh, Now, the plan will include streamlining grants. There's going to be a cap on administrative costs. And the per-student funding formula is going to change as well. Now, we'll learn more in the uh, upcoming budget. But joining us uh, to talk more about the announcement today is Alberta's uh, Minister of Education, Adriana LaGrange, joins us. Minister, thank you for making some time for us. You're welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me on the show. All right. Why is there a need to change the way education is funded? Well, um, there's a need to change because uh, over the last 15 years, uh, while we've had inflation grow by 33% and enrollment grow by 25%, we have had um, our operational cost spending grow by 80%, and it's just not sustainable. So we have to find a new model that will um, sustain uh, the growth and uh, while still maintaining a world-class quality education. And that's been our commitment. Also, school boards and school administrators for a very, very long time. As you know, I was a former school board trustee for over 11 and a half years 
We've been asking for sustainable, predictable funding, and this is certainly something that this new model will deliver on. It's sustainable, predictable funding that school boards will have uh, knowledge of what their funding envelopes are very, very early on so they can make informed decisions for their school divisions. Well, and, and a big part of that, I guess, is when it comes to enrollment, uh, that, that this is going to use enrollment estimates as opposed to, to having finalized enrollment numbers now. So what, what kind of change is that going to represent? It, it actually moves uh, it to a uh, weighted moving average. So um, you would take the number of students uh, this year, next year, and uh, uh, and the current year, and weigh it out. Um, I, I can't get into the specifics um, numbers today because, of course, that uh, comes next week when we announce the budget. But what it does do is it um, it evens out the ebbs and flows of, of student numbers and allow school boards to know with, with great precision what their dollars will be for the upcoming school year. Okay, so... Obviously, there there are a number of school boards that have increasing enrollment. Uh, some are, are are not. Some have actually decreased in enrollment. Is this going to have a different impact on these different boards, or do you see the the impact being uh, more or less the same right across the across the board? Well, uh, with uh, growth boards, they will still be getting more um, dollars because proportionally they will get more dollars um, as their numbers increase, even under the new um, weighted moving average. Uh, But what I can definitely say is because of the fact that there will be uh, fewer grants to deal with, um, there's more efficiency, more streamlining, less red tape, uh, there will be an opportunity for every school division in this upcoming school year to see an increase in their funding at bottom line. They will have more dollars and more ability to put those dollars back into the classroom. Okay, well, many school boards are saying that they haven't received funding as of now for increased enrollment. The many school boards have seen a, a reduction in funding. Well, in fact, last year uh, we kept the budget flat at $8.223 billion. Uh, there were three grants that were repurposed to, um, alloc- uh, to um, fund enrollment growth, and every single student in the province was funded. And uh, as well, every single uh, uh, envelope with um, special needs funding, PUF funding, uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit, uh, funding uh, and refugees, et cetera, et cetera. All those envelopes were funded exactly as previous years. Uh, there were other challenges, but again, we are maintaining that 8.223 funding envelope. But I'm happy to say under this new funding and assurance model that we will be delivering a more equitable um, uh, way of, of funding every student uh, so that uh, school boards have that sustainable, predictable funding that they can make decisions early on. Typically, school boards have to wait till enrollment counts at the end of September to make decisions. This gives them the ability very early on, um, probably by the end of March here, to be able to see exactly what their dollars are and to make those informed decisions, knowing that the funding envelope will not change come September. So school boards that have increasing enrollment then are, are not going to face any reductions? Uh, school boards that have increasing enrollment will, will again be uh, going through that weighted moving average and they will see increases as their, their numbers increase. Again, school boards with, um, in growth, I would say, are, will proportionally get more dollars. And they also have the benefit of the economies of scales that smaller and smaller boards and boards that have diminishing numbers um, don't have. Uh, This new model 
absolutely will um, be uh, working towards smoothing the ebbs and flows of enrollment growth and decline across this province. So it really does uh, provide an equitable funding across the province. Uh, this cap on administrative costs, what, what, what does that apply to? Um, typically in the past, uh, administrative um, costs in terms of uh, staffing for administration and school board costs and other non, uh, non-classroom non costs, those have been absorbed throughout other grants, whether it was base funding or, or other types of uh, grant funding. With having a dedicated uh, administrative and office um, administration cost um, in a targeted grant, it is very transparent. It allows everyone in the system to see the transparency of where those dollars are going. What, what do these grants cover? Why, why are there the grants above and beyond what is built in as, as per student funding? Well, over, over the years, um, there have been pilot projects and grants that have been layered upon grants to the extent that we now have 36 grants um, operating the funding system in Alberta right now. What we are um, doing with the new funding model is taking that down to a more manageable number of 15 so that school boards have flexibility built into the the way that they can disperse those grants, they can target them uh, to meet the needs of their um, unique school divisions and do away with a lot of the administrative costs and the red tape that has been built up and layered up over the years. I mean, is any of this aimed at, at outcomes? Or are, are we just looking at how money is spent in funding efficiencies? Or is, is part of this that we're, we're trying to get better outcomes? Well, and the goal is always to get better outcomes. And, and the way to get better outcomes is to ensure that we have more resources and uh, ability for school divisions to have the teachers in front of students and the resources in front of the students that are required. So through streamlining the system, through um, providing um, something that is predictable and sustainable and allowing them to have that flexibility built into the funding uh, formulas, then we can provide um, the opportunity for school divisions to target better outcomes as well because they do not have to spend as many dollars um, out of the classroom, they can focus it back into the classroom. All right, the budget is coming down on February 27th. So what more then are we going to learn about this this plan uh, from the budget? Well, what uh, we provided today are the broad strokes. Uh, when you see the budget, you will actually see the fine numbers. Uh, school divisions will be given their individual profile so that they will know what the fine numbers are that are attached to each of those grant areas. And at the end of it, uh, at the bottom line, as I said earlier, every single school division in this province will see an increase in their bottom line, bottom line funding. And they'll have that certainty then going into the next school year. Absolutely. And that's something that they haven't had for a very, very long time. All right. Well, as you say, we'll learn more on February 27th. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Minister, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you so much, Rob. All right, that is uh, Education Minister Adriana LaGrange talking about this uh, change today in uh, how schools, uh, school boards are funded by the Alberta government. We'll get some specific numbers in the upcoming budget. Again, February 27th is when the uh, Alberta budget comes down. I want to get into the issue of, of autonomous vehicle technology. And, and obviously the te- that technology has come a long way in the last uh, 10 years, certainly even the last five years. So as we get closer to a day where autonomous vehicle technology 
is widely available and widely used. A big, big obstacle to overcome is the fact that not everywhere is Phoenix, Arizona. There's a reason why a lot of these big companies are testing their technology in that kind of climate. Because when it comes to nice, pleasant, dry weather, this technology does really well. When it comes to, I'll say, today in Calgary, (laughs) winter driving conditions, not so much. So that's a big problem. Uh, a team of researchers at the University of Toronto and the University of Waterloo are working to overcome that. They've been gathering a tremendous amount of data over the last couple of years, an autonomous vehicle that they designed and built. Uh, and they've created a massive data set that they hope will shape the research and the technology going forward to get us to a day where we have technology that knows how to drive in winter. And part of it is having the information that the technology can learn much like a new driver has to learn how to drive in winter. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, one of the members of this research team, Christoph Zarnecki, is a professor in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department at University of Waterloo, also head of the university's Generative Software Lab, and he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Zarnecki, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Hello. Well, let's talk about the, uh, you know, the state of the technology itself. Why is it then, based on how autonomous vehicle technology works, that winter driving conditions are so problematic? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, winter can impact visibility. Um, for example, when you have uh, snow, snowfall, um, that essentially um, well, can confuse the camera, can confuse the uh, uh, laser scanners. Um, by just limiting the visibility. Um, you know, the second factor is that, that it um, uh, can also change the appearance of the world, so the AI algorithms get confused. Uh, and in general, um, for example, um, when you have snow on the road, um, it's, it's just uh, more difficult to uh, figure out where to drive, uh, and that can be quite tricky for, for the system. Right, and I, I think part of the, the impetus for this research project, I guess, is, is to really emphasize that th- this is something that, that we need to focus on, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Um, most of the development has basically been uh, you know, focusing on nice weather driving because making automated driving system is, is, is pretty hard, uh, and it's still not a really solved problem. Uh, and uh, that's where most companies have invested their energy. Um, but we have to start addressing uh, adverse uh, um, weather, particularly winter weather, if we you know, want to see autonomous vehicles anytime, you know, in the next uh, maybe decade or so, also in Canada. So talk about this project then, because this involves uh, an autonomous vehicle that, that you were involved in putting together, I, I guess, in, in 2018, right? That's correct. Um, so in 2016, we started building uh, a system <clears throat> which we use for research and um, training uh, our students. Uh, and so we built uh, software that uh, controls the vehicle, and uh, we were the first to uh, test it on uh, public roads in uh, in Canada. And our vehicle was the first one to actually receive the permit to be tested on public roads. And so we did that in 2018. Uh, and since then, we've been focusing on specific research topics, and, and uh, obviously uh, winter weather is something that we uh, pretty much quickly realized when we actually trying to, we're trying to test in winter. And, uh, you know, if, for example, going on an unplowed road, um, you know, the first challenge is where should the car drive? You know, even if you have a map, 
that tells you where the road is. Uh, you know, you might have a part of the road that's, that has drifts, and you have to avoid them. And uh, it's it's actually pretty tricky for the system to figure out uh, when it's okay to drive over drift and when it's not. Right. So then how do you go about using this, this vehicle then to compile this data set? Yeah, so basically there, there has been uh, quite some data released over the last few years to help both researchers and uh, also companies to train AI uh, to um, you know, operate um, on on the road, but particularly in in, uh, in in fair weather. And there has not been yet a data set, and so by data set I mean essentially you can think of it like recorded video mm-hmm. of uh, winter driving, including the laser scans and precise GPS uh, location and so on, uh, and um, having also each of the individual frames or, if you want, like snapshots within the video, annotated with the information where the relevant objects, such as uh, you know other cars and pedestrians, are. Uh, and uh, that's essential in order to train the AI, uh, but also then to benchmark it or compare how well uh, you know the AI is actually doing and in, in recognizing these objects and and being able to understand the environment. Um, and so, yeah, there hasn't been anything like that for winter driving. So, so we basically set out to change that uh, and rec- recorded the data set last year uh, in winter, and it took us about a year to get all annotated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a considerable data set, uh, and I think certainly an important one. What, what do you hope, then, is, is now done with this data, and whether it's it's industry or others in academia? Uh, is is this something for, for everyone to dive into? Right, so we have uh, released it um, publicly, meaning that <clears throat> any researchers or uh, also companies who want to, uh, for example, innovate algorithms uh, can use that as long as they you know, share the results with others. Um, so, um, it, it, on the one hand side, it allows to you know, really just to start uh, innovating um, in terms of coming up with new algorithms, and a prerequisite is to have data like that, uh, and then also to compare the different algorithms that uh, might be produced by you know, competing um, competing solutions, basically. Uh, allowing us to benchmark and sort of say, okay, well, these ideas are good, um, and you know they, they should be used as a baseline from now on. Uh, so it's really um, a way to kind of spur this this uh, innovative spirit and also some of the competition that has worked for um, other aspects in autonomous driving for other data sets in the past. So we hope to actually do the same now for winter driving. Yeah. Well, it's a big difference, right? I mean, you know, there's, I guess, a reason why a lot of these companies are, are testing their vehicle technology in pleasant climates. Uh, when, when conditions are ideal, this technology is very good. But how far off are we when it comes to developing technology uh, that can learn, that can understand winter driving conditions? I think that we have still uh, quite some, yeah, qu- quite some uh, work to do. Um, you know, if, even in fair weather, um, there are situations um, that can surprise the AI, and we have still challenges in terms of, you know, assuring that it always will respond in the in the right way. Uh, and uh, when we actually go into um, adverse weather. Things are way more complicated, and so I believe this is still, you know, at least a decade away until we we kind of start uh, you know, getting a handle on the problem. But it is achievable. You think it's it's doable? <clears throat> I, I think it is doable. Um, 
you know, this is actually one important open question in in, um, in autonomous driving, and, and basically the question is whether seeing enough examples is enough to handle safely all situations. Um, you have to um, you know keep in mind that AI doesn't have common sense, right. and this is the thing that helps us when we see something new that we haven't seen before, like humans, right? I mean, we basically develop common sense over, you know, maybe 16 or whatever, 18 years until we uh, start driving. And when we're faced with something new, we, we kind of, uh, oh, we understand the world, and then we can uh, come up with a, with a solution on the spot. Uh, AI doesn't have that. AI essentially has to be fed all the examples of all the things that can happen. And uh, right now, the, the hypothesis is basically that uh, we will feed enough of these examples. And once you have more and more vehicles on the road, they, they will see more examples and share those examples uh, among each other. Uh, and so that way we, we can outsmart that, that common sense. Uh, but uh, whether this works out, well, we'll see. <laughs> Indeed we will. Uh, quite fascinating stuff. Uh, Professor Zarnecki, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks so much. That is uh, Christoph Zarnecki, a professor in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department at the University of Waterloo, one of the creators of what has been dubbed the Canadian Adverse Driving Conditions Dataset. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.